The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, we're going to continue a, a couple more conversations regarding heroes and villains. And so today we're going to look at, um, you know, I, I have this thing when I, the heroes and villains of the Bible. It's almost like discussing, you know, when people look at counterfeit money. If you study the real thing long enough, you, you'll know the, the, the thing that's phony more quickly. So rather than look at villains, you know, and there's certainly, you know, a few in the scriptures, uh, I'd rather look at people. I think this guy's kind of a hero. This, this woman's kind of a heroine. She's, these people are doing the right thing. And so I'm, I'm going to speak about somebody who is uh, Italian, you know, so you know, there's good food and it's good clothes. So let's go to Luke chapter 7. And we'll take a look at a fella whose story I, I, I hope you'll find interesting. And if not, it'll be over in about a half hour. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10 says this. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And there was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus... He sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. It makes me wonder if if they had not said this, like Jesus says, no, I'm not going. but, uh, But it says, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends, to say to him, hey, Lord, you know what? Don't, um, don't trouble yourself, for I, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. So this is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now here's why he understands why he says this. For I myself am a, of a man under authority, with soldiers under me. So I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, look, I'll tell you something. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Uh, I think I've told you that when you uh, read the Gospels without the filter of knowing anything, because there's, there's a problem if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, is that uh, you think you know the story of Jesus. So when you read the Gospels, usually you have some unnamed uh, pastor or Bible teacher or a, a book you read, and you, it's almost like being a little goosling. You know, the, the first thing they see is a the mom, they always follow it. The first thing you've probably heard about a passage is usually the thing that you've imprinted with, and that's how you process that story. This is, this is the story. I already know what this story is about to a degree. Occasionally, somebody might, you know, reveal back something that's kind of interesting. You go, well, okay, you know. And so many times, I think when, I, when this story is read, that um, there's a focus on the miraculous, which is there. There's a focus on humility. That's there also. But here's something I found that was interesting. Jesus mentions only three times someone he's impressed with, someone that he finds their belief, the way that they're processing him and entering into their, their journey spiritually, that he's kind of impressed with. I mean, well, not kind of. He says it. This is really remarkable. 
the first thing I noticed about that is the person's never Jewish. And this is one of them, this centurion. Um, I'm going to give you quite a bit of just context to hang this story in. Number one, the guy that wrote this book wasn't Jewish. A man named Luke, and we find out from other letters that Paul wrote. He's Greek, obviously. He's a doctor. And um, he wrote two books, Luke and the book of Acts. And when you put those two books together, you have from birth to 25, 30 years after the church was moving on, you have like 40, 50 years of history in those two books. Because he's Greek, Western, uh, he thinks like us. Actually, we think like him. Everything's linear. This happened, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. So it's completely unlike the Hebraic way of telling a story or Middle Eastern way of telling a story, which has maybe a broader view. And there's more of a focus of maybe imagery in Middle Eastern thought. He, my God's a rock, the water, this kind of thing. Where we prefer bullet points, systematic theology, outlines, PowerPoint, or if you have a Mac, keynote. So you, we have a... a fairly chronological account of the story of Jesus in the book of Luke. So if you like history, you know, you're going to just love Luke and Acts, the two books that he wrote. Second thing is that Capernaum, if you have a map, you know, I've told you that I tend to read the Bible now with maps and other history books. If you, if you were to go to your map, and you don't have to, but you can, it's going to be on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's up north, where apparently people have an accent in Israel. Uh, you know, there's that time when Jesus is arrested. They overhear Peter speaking. They go, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. You have that, I don't know, lisp, maybe it was Spanish. Uh, maybe they had this uh, draw. Who knows? It was something. There was a distinctive way that those people spoke in the north. The other thing that's interesting about this town is that this is a town where Jesus spends a lot of time in. Now, here's what I find interesting about this. Is that as I go through just looking up Capernaum, Jesus has a, a large teaching talk he does in John 6. Um, he helps a guy who was in a dark spiritual place. The scriptures speak of it as being actually, his actions were no longer his own. He, he, he had lost his own volition and some level of consciousness and his personhood. And he was inhabited or controlled by um, evil spirits, demonic spirits. Um, he healed Peter's mother-in-law which I've always wondered, did Peter want that? But nonetheless, um, don't hate me for saying what you're thinking. This is, <laughs> okay, that was awful. Uh, I'm not trying to make up for the other dumb jokes. Um, this is where he would have called Peter, Andrew, and John, fishermen. Um, this is, I mean, he's vested in this town, and while he was born in Nazareth, Capernaum is often referred to as his town. So what's interesting to me is that the, the elders of this community have to explain to Jesus who this man is. So the, the centurion, you know, knows about Jesus. Jesus doesn't know about him. Capernaum is a large enough town to have its own synagogue, which Jesus taught at. So the, 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 the synagogue itself would not have been you know, something new to Jesus. It's a place where um, there must have been a, at least a garrison of Italians stationed there. The guy lived there. And, and he's interesting to me in the sense that 
you know, I, this is, this is going to be shocking to some of you. I, I've never been a very physically huge man. I've always been sort of, you know, efficient, slender, <laughs> emaciated. And so, uh, <laughs> um, and so people who are in the military or people who are, you know, let's say cops or, you know, mixed martial arts, they'll look like, well, those are huge, thick guys, you know? So this is no slouch, this guy, right? And somewhere in all of his, um, well, he has seen battles, he has heard people die, he's probably killed them, he's, he, he supervises killers. He represents the occupying nation in Israel. Most likely married, most likely a mistress or two, um, probably some kids, maybe some from his wife. Um, but somewhere along the line, he was uh, attracted to the way that the Jewish people lived their lives, their, their, their monastic, monotheistic worldview, maybe their morality, their family life, you follow? There was something about it that was attractive enough that he begins to practice that belief. So much so that it means something to him that he pays out of his own pocket to build a synagogue for them. Though he would not have probably been able to go in as a Gentile. Um, On top of that, he has um, a person that he owns, a slave. And in, in, in Rome at that time in history, there would have been more slaves than free people. Now, I mean, there's an awful, probably so many... You know, whether you've had exposure to working for people who are in trafficking or, or you know, just some of the nonsense that goes on in, in, in slavery currently, or the, the, that horrible black period of our history in America, <clears throat> you know, it just has an awful, awful, awful designation when you hear the word slavery. It still is that way in that period, but there was also the, the type of slaves where they were just highly um, trained, efficient, Mexican employees. They could have been paying back a debt, um, or they could be working towards their freedom. But they were a valued member of the family. In many cases, like Paul speaks about in Galatians, giving an example of freedom that we have as followers of Jesus, that there were times they were entrusted with the care and, and, and the nurturing of the children of that family that they were owned by. And this particular servant, slave, was so interwoven with the family that as, when he's sick and ill, he could have just tossed him. Could have just, you know, sent him away to die, left him exposed. Listen, not only would it not have raised an eyebrow, it might have been expected. Instead, this was so weird to me. You might say he goes this muscular, hairy, Italian, you know, with espresso and, um, and a great suit. He goes to some of the Jewish elders, hat in hand, says, Can you, would, could you please talk to Jeshua for me, for my servant? I don't want him to die. Now, they say Yes. Now, what's interesting to me is that it doesn't designate these Jewish elders as followers or believers in, in Jesus either. 
You see, the story gets weird to me. The more you try to, you know, kind of peel, wait a minute, like, you know, when you first read it, you, you, you kind of skip through the gaps of the story until you begin to, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. The guy's Italian. He wouldn't have been allowed in. He built the place. He goes to them. Would you speak on my behalf? They say yes. They go to Jesus. They're Jesus, you know what? Could you please come and help this guy? And then comma, he deserves it. He's done these good things. And it's almost, I don't know, are the gears turning in Jesus' head? Okay. I'll go. On the way over there, for some reason, this, you know, man's man, this warrior, this, he represents Rome, the power and the might of Rome, you know, the, the steel fist of Rome, stationed there in this outpost in the Middle East. And for some reason, maybe he begins thinking about it, he says, you know, I don't even deserve this guy to be in my house. So he sends a friend of his, maybe, the Italians, right? So um, go, go tell this Jewish guy, which one was he? He's short, beard, I'll go on. You know, go, go tell him, look, please don't come to my house. I really don't deserve you to come to my house. But what's interesting to me is why he sent them that. Now, that's the setup. So here's the kind of the quick points I'm going to take away from this for you. During this past week, I've been thinking a lot about what is it about Christianity or church that I'm afflicted with? How is it that I have been so perhaps immersed in this whole culture that I have forgotten the person of Jesus? In other words, um, I think I told you about this. When there was a period as a student of the scriptures for the last 35 years, I was two when I converted, that uh, (laughs) it was much safer to read the epistles that sort of theoretically interpreted and explained the life of Jesus than reading the words and observing the life of Jesus. Because over here, I could try to, you know, I I could get my questions answered somehow in the epistles. Don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not trashing Paul or Peter's writings. I'm just explaining how I processed it. It was, um, it was a lust for certainty. You know, some of you have been to my home, have one or two books. And, um, you know, the New American, the this Bible, the that Bible, this, commentaries. And I realized that I was, I was putting um, Christ in that place that's safe where it's all... I could explain his life. I could explain the points of different theology, schools of thought. But it didn't really change how I was. And so I, I think we're all mature enough to come to, the, to be honest with ourselves and to understand and admit that theology nor the scriptures really change anybody. Right? I mean, there, there are people that never go to church that stay faithful to their wives, pay their bills, and are decent human beings. And then there are pastors that are the exact opposite. So apparently it's not the scriptures that change anybody. With all apologies to those of you who are Biola and Talbot. <clears throat> so orthodoxy apparently has very little to do with experiencing God through Jesus Christ. Then I went through my Pentecostal stage. 
which was interesting because, hey, if you're here from that school of thought, you know, you're welcome, just stay in your seat. But uh, (laughs) I just remember it hit me one day when I saw the modesty blankets that, you know, for women that would faint under the effect of God, that I thought, you know, if I... Well, here's how I came to this conclusion. Do you ever go, do you ever, uh, when you visit your family, you, you, you kind of forget how weird they are? <laughs> until you bring, like, somebody, like, you're dating for the first time over to meet your family? Then you notice that, that your uncle really does scratch himself inappropriately on a regular basis? <laughs> At the table? And you begin to realize how goofy sometimes your family is when a stranger walks in, or when uh, someone from the outside comes into you. They're your family, right? I mean, that, you know, they're your, they're your family. But from somebody from outside your family, you begin to see them differently, like, wow. If, they, if this person that I'm trying to impress makes the connection that I have the same DNA, they might, you know, they might run. Have you ever thought of what it's like to go to church with somebody who doesn't go to church? How they see it? See, because, you know, uh, uh, I remember growing up in a church where the organ player was just bad. You know? Turn to him, 482. We're going to slaughter that gracious music, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to defile this beautiful piece of music. And it was, you know, just horrible. But it's what you grew up with. But then you bring somebody who's new, who's interested, wondering, does... This, is, is there an answer in church? Maybe. And then all of a sudden you see it through their eyes and you go, man, this is awful. And that's how it was with the modesty blankets. I remember they, they, were, they were always on hand in case some woman fell over, always wearing a dress because you're a church. Because surely God would not accept a woman wearing pants. Speaking of dresses, when I was in India, those are comfortable. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start something new out here <laughs> in Whittier. I'm going to sport the lungi. And I remember thinking, is, can, you, can you really like, bring God, like, bam, on, between the hours of 9 to 10.30 every Sunday morning? Like, he's just waiting, like, man, I, I, oh, I wanted to go early, but the service doesn't start. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, orthopathy or, or correct emotions, some, they, they, were, they were meaningful. I got it, but it just didn't seem like you could put it on command like that, on schedule. Then you go through a stage where everything is about orthopraxy, just doing the right thing. Um, the the ex Roman Catholic in me loves this. You know, uh, this weekend is interesting that we have so many people gone. It's Labor Day weekend, you know, and and then there's folks who are in Ensenada serving and doing great things there and helping out. Uh, there's folks at Terra Nova. You know, the conference there, all the creative things that are going on there. But have you noticed how, um, yeah, how can I put this? Whenever somebody said I should do something or implied that from my parents on, parents, pastor, or the police, I just always push back. And, and, and I found myself that, yeah, you know, my, my wife is different from me, you know female, but, but the other part of it is that, uh, that she has a sense of that, well, if it's your duty, you should do your duty. And I, I, I get that, 
for others, but I'm not able to wrap my mind completely around it. Because for me, if I've reduced Jesus to a duty, I, I, just, I just think I've insulted the whole connection. Here's what I found out when this happened. I had a girlfriend once before I was married. Uh, my wife insisted I stop dating once I got married. And, um, and uh, you know, she was a senior in college and I was the freshman and, you know, she was the bomb and I was the bomber. And so, <laughs> so we, we went out and, and, and we connected, okay? And you know how sometimes you love people from afar and then you get up close, you go, oof. You love the ideal. You love the idea of love, but not this person with you, you know. And so it got to that point a couple months into it, and I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm stuck. Now I was 18, so you know, mistakes were made. But my point is that she was talking marriage and kids and meet the family and blah blah blah. And you know, the family had money, so I was, you know, I was I was on the fence. I was willing to consider it, you know. <laughs> And because uh, I might run for political office, and I might, I might need a wealthy family to back me up. Um, I just couldn't do it, man. I mean, everything was right about it, but I just didn't care for the person. Not that I hated them, I just, you know, we were not dialed in. Then she tells me, I'm having the surgery. <sighs> Why couldn't you be sick before I met you? Because how can I break up with you when you're going to be sick? Right? So I, I pretended, thought it was my duty. And then she got better. And then it was like a week or two from graduation. And like, okay, how do I drop this bomb, you know? And so I pretended longer, thinking I had to do my duty. There is a point to the story. It's just that I remember uh, at the party at her folks' house. I was, you know... You know when you're out, when you're done with the relationship, you, you're, you look for any reason to leave, right? You know, I got to change from summer to winter air in my tires. You know, I'm cleaning my hairbrushes. I got to go. <clears throat> I said some stupid lame excuse that an 18-year-old would say, okay, bye, babe, kissed her goodbye, and we both knew at that moment. I was not into it. And I've never forgot that moment when I realized that sometimes I was, quote, obeying Christ out of a duty. It was that phony, awful kiss that really didn't mean anything. So here's why I think this centurion to us can maybe be a hero. I want you to notice a couple of things. He did have his orthodoxy correct. He understood that Jesus was the guy that could make a difference. He understood even better than the Jewish people who were around him. I think he even had the proper actions. I'm I'm gonna do this thing. I mean, uh, if you read the account in Matthew, he does great things. So as a God-fearer, he would pray as often as the Jewish faith would require. He would practice trying to understand what the scriptures mean. He would adjust his life to fit the morality that's given to us in the life of Jesus. <clears throat> and you can see that expressed in his heart that he actually cares for people. See, that, that was probably the most meaningful thing to me, understanding that for, for, some, for a person that had, in, in a way, no, um, a person that really was low in the status of 
that Roman mentality, he cared for and he used his ability, might, and power, whatever our resources, to care for this person. The person began to have meaning to him other than just an asset. It's like the way that sometimes we still treat relationships. I'm into this as long as it's, you know, there's something in it for me or pays off for me. But it's, it's the emotions that I think are also um, interesting here. Let me go back to the story for just a moment. Well, let's go to verse 6. He sends the other friend to tell Jesus, you know, I'm really, I don't deserve you to be in my house. I know who I am, I know who you are, and, you know, you shouldn't come in. So verse 7, that's why I didn't even consider it worthy. I didn't even consider that I should come to you. But it was his understanding about this, verse 8, that makes it interesting to me. He says, I get what it's like to serve a Lord. You're the Lord of lords. Therefore, I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you to speak on this request, nor did I think you should come to my house. All of that right thinking, right actions, right emotions. This is the, one of the first people Jesus says, this guy gets it. See, here's what I want to maybe leave you with, is that some of us are in the trap of operating in one or two of those realms, but not all three. Um, you're studying, you're reading, you want to know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not dumping on that, I'm not disparaging or discounting that, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to hopefully save you many years of, of, of wilderness and dryness in thinking that somehow you'll experience God more fully, more richly in a dynamic manner because you've read about him. Or you got the right scores in, a, in an exam. And some of us have, have, you're looking for some kind of powerful emotional experience, you know, some sort of crying moment. And I'm not dumping on that either. I know it sounds like it, but I'm not. It's, it's just that how many of us have had very powerful emotional experiences in a large setting or small setting in a church setting, religion, and, and you know, the next day you're the person that you were when you walked in, right? I mean, I've had those moments. You know, you 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 make your recommitments. I'm never going to do anything wrong again. I'm going to be the guy. I'm yours. If there's someone cut you off in that parking lot, though, you're gesticulating for them to move on. So that's not it either. Though it it will include that. And some of us have, have uh, you know, whether it's, I don't know, it, it could be the way your parents brought you up. It could be the, the, maybe your first exposure to, to a form of Christianity. It could be um, just not willing to accept kindness and grace because it actually is embarrassing, isn't it, at times? To be fully aware of, your, uh, of who you are or what you are, your damage, your brokenness, your guilt. I mean, however you process it, however you approach it. And for God to say, I, I am completely aware that you're a mess. You have no idea how much I love you. Um, I, I am not unaware of all your weirdness, and I have forgiven you. I mean, I, I, this is why I came. You know, if you weren't weird, I wouldn't have a reason to come, you know? I complete you, you know. <laughs> and sometimes we just live there in that moment only. We never move past it. Where this particular centurion was all three. I want to read a passage to you here out of um, John fifteen nine, And we're going to close with this 
passage. Jesus is having dinner with his closest students, disciples, and uh, in a few hours, their understanding of, of the world and life is going to be flipped and changed, and Jesus knows he's going to be executed. And so he's just these last few moments that he has with these guys. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. How? If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. I've, um, I was mentioning last week as we were talking about this that, um, you know, it's kind of, kind of really, I don't know, borders on silly to arrogant to assume that we add to the conversation of God by us trying to figure out God. And that really the, the, the starting place is Jesus himself who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we, we're no longer guessing. We, if we look at the life of Jesus, how he lived, how he interacted, what he did, how he responded, we're getting a picture of God the Father. Right? It, it's, it's not about words. It's not about works. It's not about wonders. It's it first, foremost, beginning, ending, above, below. It's about Jesus Christ and who he is. See, because the thing is, is that I, I, see, whether you call yourself a follower or not this morning, here's what I'm gonna say that, that fits for all of us. We all get to choose which fire or passion that's gonna consume us. We have a choice in the matter. The fire of Christ God restores and redeems. It doesn't consume to ash. It's meant to heal. It's meant to liberate. It's meant to give us back our humanity. It's meant to give us back our sanity. It's meant to restore. And in all of these processes in following Jesus, whether you're, you know, you're, you're a veterano, you know, following Christ, or you're you know, you're, you're brand new, like, ah, I don't even know. This is for me yet. Listen, I get it. But you will never be disappointed in pattering your life and committing your life to the person of Jesus Christ. It will involve right thinking. It will involve right actions. And it will involve right emotions. And where all those three intersect, you've reached this nexus point of heaven and earth meeting in your life, liberating you to become a little Christ. Let me pray and dismiss you guys. Father, there are um, people in this room in various places spiritually. Um, what I pray is that by your Holy Spirit that they would hear uh, what you have to say to them clearly. Maybe it's um, words of peace Perhaps it's words of encouragement. Maybe it's words of, um, I'm not going to abandon you. For some of us, it might be a warning that, you know, this is not a good idea in what you're doing and what you're thinking of doing.
because you are kind and because you are good, I thank you that you sent your son who died for all of our crimes, rose from the dead as alive still, and is able to change hearts, minds, lives, destinies. What I pray is for those of us who claim to be your students and your followers and your disciples, that um, we would be honest with ourselves and strip away maybe some of, uh, some of the Western American church filters that we've put on and have on and, and just get to your son Jesus, the, the Jesus found in the Gospels, the Jesus that's explained and interpreted in the epistles, in the letters that Paul and Peter and John wrote. I pray for others who are maybe just struggling with that, wondering that, that they would continue to hear your voice of welcome, of including that you're not angry or condemning or judging, but that you're loving. And I pray that you help us fulfill that command that you mentioned. You didn't, you know, you didn't revoke it. You ask us to love one another. So help us to be those people as well. In your son's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.